We uh, continue uh, this morning in worship as we turn to God's Word. I've uh, been oh so thankful for the preaching of the Word in this place over the course of this summer. As Pastor Nates has led us uh, through the opening verses of John's Gospel and has reminded us with such clarity of the divinity of Christ and who He is and why He's come. Well, this week we uh, turn back to a little mini-series in Hebrews 12 on running with endurance. Next week we'll have the uh, privilege of hearing from uh, Eric McKitty, and uh, that will be uh, followed by uh, Josh Moody's return to the pulpit. Well, this is the third message in a three-part series, and uh, it follows on what has come before us. Uh, We saw that uh, initially what the author is calling us to is to, to set our gaze upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and then he introduced to us the topic of trials and and how this is God's discipline for His children, His loving discipline. It confirms our identity and His affection for us and His redemptive purposes. So now we turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. That's our text for this morning. As we look to the effects now of God's chastening in our lives for His redemptive purposes such that we would run with all endurance. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your spirit um, that uh, helps us to see you, Christ, with clarity and your word with clarity. And we ask that you would teach us even this day through your word, by your spirit, for your glory, for our good. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Thomas Boston, the great Scottish Puritan, in his classic work on suffering and the sovereignty of God, entitled uh, The Crook in the Lot, once said of sin that it has turned the world from a paradise to a thicket. There is no getting through without being scratched. Now, I can think of few statements more self-evidently true than Boston's. And the specific truth he has his finger on 
is that we live in a terribly broken, fallen world. And there's no escaping it. The longer you live, the longer I live, the more acutely aware we are of the sufferings of this world and even more of our own sin. Now, this is not just an experiential truth. It it is a truth that we know from God's revelation. For sin shows up across the breadth of the Scriptures, from the very beginning chapters all the way through. We see corruption, deceit, darkness, treachery, violence, enmity, disobedience, self-deception, hypocrisy, idolatry, grumbling, obstinacy, rebellion, pride, lust, deviancy, anger, gossip, malice, slander, strife, neglect, greed, envy, jealousy, injustice, abuse, oppression, death, unbelief. Sin has turned paradise into a thicket. Indeed, perhaps the most vigorous thicket known to man. We know the reality of sin, and we know there's no denying it. We know it as we witness suffering in the world. We know it in our own hearts as we see sin manifested in our thoughts, our motives, our words, our actions, our non-actions. We see it most acutely in our rebellion against God, pursuing our way rather than His, selfishness rather than following Christ. Fundamentally, all sin stems from that rebellion, that turning away from God. That's what the Scriptures teach us. We live in a thicket, and we've been scratched, each one of us. In fact, we've been more than scratched, haven't we? We've been scarred, deeply wounded, dislocated, disoriented by sin. So we shouldn't be surprised then in our lives when discouragement comes. Times of disappointment, despondency, even despair as we, as we survey the world around us. Times when we just want to give up on God, turn our backs on Him, walk away from the faith. See, this was the case for the recipients of this letter. And in it, we're given a picture of what this discouragement looks like in verses 12 and 13. The author gives us a a vivid portrait of the runner now who is who has drooping hands and weak knees, is, is exhausted and is zigzagging over his path. Kind of delusionary almost with discouragement. This is, this is a picture of, of what it looks like when you endure suffering, persecution, hardship, and affliction. And so the author is set out rightly to help us understand where this comes from, to help us understand God's disciplining love and His purposes in trials and hardship. 
Now this picture that the author draws on is, is not a new picture in the Scriptures. It actually comes from the prophet Isaiah, who in chapter 35, as, as he was speaking to Israel, says, Strengthen the weak knees and make firm, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And so this writer of Hebrews is now following Isaiah in exhorting the people of God in the saving work of God. And with God's coming deliverance always in view, he exhorts us to run the straight path, enduring faith, persevering, particularly in two areas in the passage before us as it pertains to the outward call and as it pertains to the upward call. And after he he expounds on call, he then gives us a caution, actually three cautions to guard against as we endure in faith. So the call and the caution. First, the outward call is this, that we pursue peace with everyone. Paul puts it this way. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, the reality that this author has been expounding on has been the reality of the gospel and the sacrifices of Christ and the perfect sacrifice of Christ and what it has accomplished. And when we rightly see that and avail ourselves of that by faith, then we know peace. We know peace with God. We are no longer in rebellion, no longer under His wrath, no longer at enmity toward God, but we are at rest under His care and His sovereign hand. And that peace thus enables us then to live at peace with others. It's first that vertical dimension that enables horizontal relationships to be what they are and should be in Christ. So faith in the finished work of Christ then creates lovers of peace, workers toward peace. Others may not desire it, but we are called to pursue it. So if peace is lacking in our lives, then somewhere, somehow, the gospel is lacking. There's something that is not having its effect upon us the way it ought. I've already mentioned how sin and suffering in a fallen world can lead to discouragement. Perhaps you know this in your own lives where you've seen a season where you were just downcast in spirit. And as you step back and try to point your finger on how did this come about, where did it happen, you look to a particular situation or something that has happened. Maybe it is a broken relationship or a pain that has been inflicted upon you or a suffering of some kind, and and from that you begin to see how this has has really led to uh, a downcast heart. That's the reality of discouragement. And the fact of our matter is the matter is that as we engage others in relationship, 
we see that much of the strife or struggles that we encounter actually come from other people, from our relationships. Strife, discord, enmity, vengeance, pride. You, you get the idea. If we live in a broken world, then apart from the gospel having its way, we will know brokenness even in our relationships. So our culture understands this. They understand that, and that even if they don't grasp the gospel, they understand the brokenness of the world around us. Perhaps one of our modern-day prophets understands it best. Listen to these words from Bob Dylan. He says, broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. We know that kind of brokenness, don't we? We can sing songs of it. We know it not just in a physical, material way, but in a a deep, personal, relational way. Well, if it is true, then that brokenness is part of our relationships. We must ask, where does it come from? How how is it manifested? And often, when we're honest, we begin to see sins of, of pride or obstinacy or selfishness. The things that so easily captivate us as we engage with others. And so if we are going to know this life of peace, pursuing it, then those sins must be addressed. And and it can no longer have its way with us if relationships are going to result in peace. If we're living in light of the finished work of Christ, which is the whole point of the letter of Hebrews, then these sins will come before the cross And we will be the ones that are broken, contrite, repentant, seeking forgiveness. The Lord will begin to bring humility where there was once pride, submission where there was once obstinacy, and selflessness where there was self-centeredness. And that comes through the upward call. So it is the gospel in living color then that enables us to live for peace, to pursue peace in our relationships with others. That's the outward call. And it leads us to the upward call. It is this. That you would hunger, you would hasten for holiness. Sanctification without which, the author tells us, no one will see the Lord. See, holiness is now that vertical dimension. It pertains to our relationship with God. And it naturally begs the question, as the author sets out this directive, how does one pursue holiness? Is it something we simply strive for in our our best effort? We just try harder. 
I think that's often how we read these verses. That, that if we grow in holy, if we're, if we're really going to grow in holiness and godliness in pursuing the things of God, we simply must just try harder. Well, the offer, author directs us to a better way. That better way has been found in Christ. He's referenced it again and again, a better sacrifice who initiates a better covenant, a new covenant. So I don't think it's by the trying harder that real change and sanctification happens. It, it happens really as the gospel has its way with us. It, it happens as we grasp the reality of who, of who God is and what He's done. See, the gospel is the way the Holy Spirit brings you into union with Christ and into fellowship with Him and His holiness. Through the gospel, Christ enters your heart and gives you faith. And faith is the way you actually receive Christ and all His fullness. Even faith itself is a grace of the Holy Spirit of God. When you have faith, you believe the gospel with all your heart. That's the reality and the dynamic of the gospel. When you have faith, you believe in Christ as he is revealed and freely promised in the scriptures. You believe in him for the entirety of your salvation, but not just for your salvation. To hold on to the gospel, to trust in Christ, to believe in him by faith, is to trust in him for your standing, your righteousness before God. It's not to look to your own efforts and to try harder, but it is to trust in Christ. It's to trust in his death and life, his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and and his authority that he reigns even now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. The more you believe these truths, the more you grasp the gospel, believe the gospel, apply it to your own hearts, soak in these rich truths of the gospel, the more you grow in godliness and holiness. See, the failure to seek after holiness happens when you strive after it in your own heart, in your own effort, apart from the gospel of Christ. So the point I want to see as we pursue the upward call is this, that the gospel is the effectual means that God uses to grow us in holiness and to further us in sanctification. In other words, God provides what he requires of us. The scriptures say, no one will see God without holiness, that he demands this of us. And apart from us, apart from this, there is no hope. So the very thing that the Lord desires from us, He provides. It is true in salvation. It's true in sanctification. We work. We pursue Christ. We pursue the things of God. But we pursue them as an overflow of what He's done. Not in our own strength. Not in our own efforts. 
Let me give you an example of what this looks like from a pastor of old by the name of Walter Marshall, who, who had this incredible grasp of the love of God and its application to life. He wrote this. He says, you simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much he loves you. In the gospel, you can come to know that God truly loves you through Christ. And when you have this assurance, you can even love your enemies because you know that you are reconciled to God. You know that God's love will make even people's hatred of you work together for good. What, what he's saying is, is that even amidst the, the trials, even amidst hatred, you're able to love your enemies when you rightly understand the gospel, when you rightly understand the love of God for you. Now, I, I want to be careful. Uh, it's, it's become evident that in our culture, in the church, the love of God is a pretty hot topic. We tend to sing about it and talk about it and preach about it. But the reality is that that love is not just an ambiguous kind of general uh, affection. That love is always defined by the cross of Christ. And, and, and not to define it that way is to lose sight of God's love and its meaning and import and significance. It's, it's the cross that gives us clarity in understanding what love truly is. It comes at a great cost. I was in a, um, in a, in a large church in the area not long ago uh, for a special event, and I was amazed at how much the love of God was referenced but never once the entire time was the cross of Christ referenced. Never once. And only once was the word sin even mentioned. We must be careful not to err in that direction when talking about the gospel and the love of Christ. It is always defined by who Christ is and what He has done for sinners. So if we want to pursue holiness, we must pursue Christ and His glorious gospel. It, it is how genuine change and holiness is produced. See, this is the whole point of the beginning of chapter 12 and, and the governing verse chapter, in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the author says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It is Christ who brings these things about by His grace and for His glory. For many of us, the truths of God's glorious, abundant love shown in Christ and His death on the cross have become white noise. They're, they're not unlike the trains that are just a hundred yards from us. That that when, when you live in, in the train, near the train tracks long enough, the, the noise just becomes background noise. You don't take note of it anymore. That's, that's my existence as I work in an office within a stone's throw and, and live in a house not far away that, that I rarely ever take note of the trains. They've become white noise. 
something that I, that I know is there, but I really don't pay a lot of attention to. See, the truth is that the gospel has become like that for some of us. We, we know the truths, we understand them, we assent to them, believe them, but, but we put them on a shelf. They're background noise. See, for, for holiness to come, for us to pursue the upward call, it can only come as the gospel is at the forefront of our, of our minds and our hearts. That it's always before us as I'm faced with my weakness and the struggles of this world. Hey, let, me, let me give you a, a difference, uh, an example of what this looks like. For some of us, the gospel is kind of like a conversation um, by way of speakerphone. Uh, if, you, if you call our house, or, or let, me, let me put it this way, if I'm making a call, um, maybe to customer service of a particular organization, I'll put them on speakerphone so that I can get something else done while I'm waiting or talking and maybe clicking away a couple of emails or looking at the calendar, doing a, something on my to-do list. And, and that's the nature of the conversation. It's, it's just one point of many things going on at the time, and it, it's, it has an ancillary place. It's secondary. It's not primary. But if, if I call somebody via Skype and use a video call, say I want to call Mark and Ruth Brucato in Italy, I pull them up on my computer and they're right there in front of me and I carry on this conversation now face to face. And they are ever present before me. And they have my full attention. You see, that's, that's what the gospel should be like in our lives. That that picture before me all the time that I'm in regular conversation with. But sadly, it's more like the speakerphone conversation. It's just one thing going on amongst many and often many other things of far greater importance than that conversation. So, so that's what it looks like for the gospel to be primary in my life, to further genuine godliness and holiness. Let, let, let me think again with this, with you about this. If just for a moment, say you have um, a difficult relationship you're in the midst of. Maybe you live with a difficult spouse or a difficult neighbor, or you find it hard to love the sojourner or the stranger that you. You don't really find yourself um, setting aside your priorities for their well-being. But you just find yourself pursuing your own priorities. Well, what does it look like for the gospel to invade that moment, that difficult relationship? How, how does that really work? I, I, I see the need to be relating better, differently with that individual. How do I do that? I, I, I want to suggest that you turn back to the Word of God and perhaps the Scriptures that speak to the great love of Christ or, or so often the Scriptures that summarize, encapsulate the Gospel in, 
in, in, in summary form and, and you meditate on those. You, you come back to those truths and, and you don't just do that in a cognitive way, but, but you allow that to have its effect upon you. That, that you allow the reality of Christ's love for you, even in your selfishness, to move you away from that to selflessness. That, that you grasp the reality of who you are in Christ, resting in that, trusting in that, and then praying and asking, Lord, now in light of your great love, who I am, what you've called me to, help me to live that out in this particular way. That's, a, that's just one way of many in how we try to apply the gospel to pursue a life of godliness and holiness before God. It, it means we'll pursue those things which lead to godly, godliness, but they are the overflow of the gospel in our hearts. They're not the way we gain standing before God. So it means that we are going to trust Jesus, not try harder. Well, if we pursue the upward call of holiness, then we must keep the gospel in front of us, fixing our eyes on Jesus moment by moment. And we must come back to the truths of God's gracious love and mercy and sacrifice to the truths of our identity if we have called upon Christ in faith. And let me say this, perhaps this is new news to you and that is not how you would describe yourself. You come here curious, wondering, and not quite sure about Christ, about faith, about the gospel. Then the call to you clearly would be to turn from your sin and to trust him for the forgiveness of sin to look to his perfect sacrifice for you that you might walk by faith in him and thus begin to pursue the upward call of holiness. Friends, at the end of this letter, the author concludes with this word. He says, uh, chapter 13, verse 21, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now that's all gospel, right? What God has done, what is completed, what is finished, his perfect sacrifice by the blood of Christ, establishing a new covenant, that's all gospel. May God now equip you, may God equip you with every good thing that you may do his will. It's God equipping, God working in you so that you might do His will. Working in us, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. It's all of God. It's God's doing. That's where your hope is. That's where your dependence is. That's the glorious news of the gospel. But without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And this brings us to the cautions that we, as we pursue holiness, as we pursue peace, these, these two uh, hedges, if you will, along the straight path, we must be careful and heed the warnings that the author gives us. He gives us 
3 in particular, starting in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes us trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Friends, when the hard times come, when we're prone to discouragement or despondency, the temptation is to distance ourselves from God. It's to, to, to draw back, if you will, from the grace of God. And, and that temptation is disproportionate. See, the verb here, see to it that, is a verb of admonition. It's followed by three cautions. A disregard for grace, a warning against disregarding grace, a warning against determined defiance, and a warning against depraved idolatry. And and these warnings take place within the community of faith. That's the idea that the author has introduced earlier in the letter is developed sufficiently and comes back to even here. See to it that no one among you within the community, in your relationships, has a disregard for grace. That's the first warning. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. William Lane explains that the verb used here denotes an active disregard of the grace of God made available in the gospel, which issues from unbelief, carelessness, and a willful renunciation of grace. A willful renunciation of grace. Earlier in this letter, we're told to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The author is saying that that the grace that we need has been given to us in Christ. He's made that way and provided that for us. And so the warning here is not to disregard that. For so in disregarding, you fail to obtain the grace of God. See, the the warning is the opposite of drawing near. It's rather a turning back or turning away from grace. The the verb has the idea of those who've actually uh, been on a long march and have showed up late at the end and not are included with the rest. And and that kind of uh, tardiness, if you will, comes from being distracted by other things, lesser things. And that's the idea here is is that the grace of God would so captivate us that we fail not to obtain it. And that grace is always available to sinners when we see our daily need of it, when we avail ourselves of it. It's possible, friends, to be in this place for a long time and not see your need for grace and live in dependence upon it. Be warned. That is a caution that we must look for when we see our hearts growing cold 
to the things of Christ and the grace of God. It is discouragement that will lead to a distance. The second warning we're given is against a determined defiance. That is, that no root of bitterness would spring up and cause trouble. For by it many become defiled. The caution here alludes to Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, which is a warning to Israel against idolatry and apostasy. It says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. See, when the human heart remains stubborn toward the things of God, it becomes toxic. And in in the body of Christ, in the church, that toxicity is poisonous to the entire community. So how do you guard against that kind of stubbornness, that kind of defiance, turning your back on the things of God? I would suggest you need to grow in humility in at least three ways. First, by assessing yourself, not in comparison to others, but in light of God's character and God's holiness. Secondly, that you would look to the cross of Christ where there is no room for selfish pride. You stand next to a humble Savior There's no room for arrogance. And thirdly, according to the book of Hebrews, that you would learn to exhort one another within the fellowship, within the body of Christ. Hebrews 3 says, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the reality that is a temptation for all of us. Sin and the world around us has the potential to deceive us and to harden us. And the corrective that the author tells us is found in the body of Christ in relationship with one another that we're exhorting one another every day in the things of Christ. That's how we guard against this this determined defiance. A root of bitterness. A bitter, toxic root. And then third warning we see in this passage is against a depraved idolatry see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal these two words together describe according to one commentator a profane attitude about life namely that which is sensual and earthbound that which pursues carnal cravings of all sorts sexual and otherwise rather than spiritual blessings. That's the picture here. And the author gives us Esau as an example of what it means to be consumed by that kind of sensuality, captured by idolatry. 
You know Esau's story. Jacob's brother, he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. And the Bible says he despised his birthright. That is, he had a disdain for the covenant blessings of God. The very grace of God shown to him, he despised. He hardened himself. And he pursued idolatrous, sensuous things. He desired self-gratification over God. That's idolatry. It's pervasive in the world around us in things sensual, material, and otherwise. There's every opportunity in our world to be drawn by those things. Every opportunity to be consumed by them to the point that they become the very things we live for and we worship rather than the one true living God. That is depraved idolatry. And toward the end of his life, Esau regretted the loss of his birthright. That is, he knew it was of great value. He regretted the loss of its value, but he wasn't sorrowful for his sin or his depraved idolatry. He was only sorrowful for its consequences. That's not genuine repentance. So these warnings against against disregarding grace and against defiance and stubbornness and bitterness against idolatry are intended to keep us on a straight path, guarded on either side by peace and holiness and strengthen us then for running the race of faith with all endurance by God's grace. The Lord's table calls us as a community, as, as, a, as a fellowship of believers to this very thing that we would recall the mercies of God in sending forth His beloved Son to die for sinners like you and like me. So let us turn our hearts and our minds then to the table as we recall the great love of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are continually astounded by your grace, your, your undeserved kindness shown to us by faith. Help us, Lord, to live in light of these truths. Help us to appropriate your grace, to to grasp it where we are missing it, that it would have its way in our heart and it would be manifested in our lives as we live in holiness before you and in peace with others. We pray it all in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.